Hi, everyone. This is Brian Holiday, and this is a the first Notter Journalist of 2021. Uh, I do apologize for those of you who are wondering where I've been for the last little while. I took some time off. As you can imagine, there was so much going on in the world that it kind of felt overwhelming at times to try and focus on the multitude of different shows that I was hosting. Um, but more importantly, as you can see, I have a guest with me today. We have Dr. Han Ren. Um, Dr. Ren, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Dr. Ren studied psychology and has a PhD in psychology from the University of Texas, has been in practice since 2017, uh, focuses on anti-oppressive justice-oriented therapy, stress and anxiety, perfectionism, high achievers, Asian American and children of immigrants. That's yeah. uh, that's quite a bit. That's, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> um, I think the first thing I want to ask is what exactly is anti-oppressive justice-oriented therapy. Yeah, so it's taking into account the systems that we live in and the interactive effects of um, oppression within those systems on an individual's mental health. Um, mm -hmm. Nothing happens in our lives in a vacuum. And so my approach to therapy is very much um, systemic and examines the multitude of contributors to a person's functioning. Um, especially around issues of racial trauma and um, the intersections of other oppressive dynamics, you know, class, um, gender, um, privilege, yeah. all of those factors. Yeah. I feel like uh, one of the things that we discussed in the pre-interview last time mm -hmm. was the fact that 2020 was the first time that a lot of people started to take the time to reflect um, and it was one of the first times that I feel that I took the time to reflect more so than anything. And in doing so, it, it coincided with a lot of things that were happening in and around the world, um, mm -hmm. and specifically in North America. Um, and I think that the being at home combined with everything that was happening, it started having me, it's the first time that I've ever thought of thought to myself, I may need to address my mental health. Mm -hmm. I've never, Absolutely. yeah, I've never thought to do it. I've never, you know, the stigmas and ideas around mental health, especially in communities of color have mm -hmm. always been that we are, you know, don't necessarily trust the system, which sure. I, you know, looking at it historically, I could see why there, there may have been those feelings. Mm -hmm. And I think that in my, in my life, I was just under the thought that, you know, I myself don't identify with what is depicted as someone who needs help with their mental health. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that idea has started to shift, especially with 2020. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, what are, when we, when you, when we say dismantling our ideas on mental health, what are some of the things that we can do uh, when trying to address that? And, mm -hmm. Also, what are some of the ideas surrounding the practice of mental health and, and me as a person of color? Yeah. And how I how I move in, how I navigate that world. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, just starting with 2020 and, and the, the mirror that it's caused a lot of us to hold up to our experiences. You know, we have had a lot of time to sit in our homes and reflect. And for a lot of people who are... Um, 
jam packing their schedules and going from one thing to the next. I mean, that's kind of a way to cope. It's a way to numb because if you're constantly doing that, you don't have to be with yourself. And so 2020 kind of forced us to do that. Um, And then that combined with, you know, this big racial justice movement Mm -hmm. um, in North America and the United States in particular has made it, you know, that much more salient and imperative for people of color to seek the support that they deserve. Um, And from a perspective that is not this like hierarchical, aloof, blank slate, elitist, um, you know, psychoanalyst that we kind of, you know, think of as a media trope of of what therapy, you know, can look like the roots of, of Western therapy. Yeah. I grew up in a world where I, I, and I know it's a joke, but I think of Fraser Crane when I think yeah, exactly. Of, yeah. <laughs> I think of high society Seattle mm-hmm. and yep. you know, your, your own father who raised you, you have your, you stick your nose up to your father. And that to me, you know, I, I definitely don't identify with that because especially as a person of color, you don't even treat your own family like that. Like we mm-hmm. would never, I, 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 I speak for myself, but I imagine similarly for you, when it comes to our parents, you respect and honor yeah. and an entire show about a psychologist who, treats his dad like uh, an extra piece in the room that annoys yeah, him Yeah, really creates an idea of what the, what the practice was. Yeah. And I mean, you know, historically, you know, psychology and psychiatry in particular is very individualistic. Like you have a problem. Okay. How do you solve it? How do you buck up? What does your resiliency look like? What kind of mm-hmm. coping skills can you use to address this? And so when I think about therapy from an anti-oppressive lens, it's really like, how do you mobilize the elements in your environment, the um, the systems that you are embedded in to mm-hmm. better support and improve your mental health? Because we yep. can, you know, do all the coping skills we can think of if we're not making a living wage, you're yeah. probably not going to be very happy. Um, and certainly that's, you know, not really in the realm of my therapy or, you know, anyone's therapy to mm-hmm. people like influence such systemic issues. But, you know, the treatment is, okay, so we are embedded in these systems. So how can we do what we need to do, but also, you know, take into consideration the interactive effects of the systems at large and how can we challenge those where you know warranted and um possible and Mm -hmm. if not like how do we respect the culture that you grew up in the you know collectivist orientation for a lot of BIPOC folks um and how do we like mobilize collective care and um, community care and I, I think one of the things that's great is also identifying that that the balance recognizing that it, 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 it the individualistic idea of like it you know you need to buck up but also making sure you don't just completely shift it to the system is broken so i can never i can never be better mentally okay. uh, it, it's finding that balance and that's that's something that i i you know because it, it's true i i've started to you know 2020 was definitely the year where you you, you couldn't ignore it you know yeah. like yeah <laughs> there's a there's a lot of sitting in this room by myself mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of thinking about like you know i, I feel happy i think mm-hmm. i'm happy and mm-hmm. i think we meant we discussed it last time we spoke for the pre-interview i can feel that and think it but i can also tell there's something missing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know what are some of the things in my in my case it was just like well what do i do Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think it, 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 it's, it's very much that moment of looking at the system, seeing that the system's broken 
And then as my best friend and I say, you got to laugh because then we just laugh and then we start to worry like, hey, man, you know, we really laugh a lot, but we're not really <laughs> addressing or identifying what we should do after we laugh. We yeah. just laughing. Um, yeah, I mean, humor is an excellent coping mechanism. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a necessary one. And I mean, yeah. you know, humor and music and, and like more kind of um, embodied practices yeah. are, you know, very necessary and a big part of communities of color. Yeah. How we thrive and celebrate and connect with each other. I think I think it's just what what the what the conversation was in before 2020, him and I would always just laugh. Mm -hmm. once it got to 2020 we got scared that we were only laughing and yeah. we were like this is the first time we would ever be like mm, maybe the laughing's not enough anymore <laughs> like yeah like laughing until you started crying yes yeah there's a lot of a lot of like laughing so hard you cry and then you're like am i just crying now <laughs> yeah yeah it's a reckoning it's definitely yeah. been a reckoning for a lot of people you know a lot of kind of existential questions come up. People yeah. examine their life choices, their meaning making, um, mm. their careers, their family life. You yeah. know, people are at some pretty big crossroads just kind of across the board when it comes to why am I here and how do I make the best of my time here? Yeah. And when you see like grief and loss on this scale, yep. I mean, it's of course, you know, you, it does humble you to a point where, you know, even the most like hubris detached person, you know, has to take pause and notice yeah. it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we, we touched on it a little bit, but to go back to it, when we say anti-racist practices, mm -hmm. for, like what you, there's something you said last time that you feel that, you know, sometimes we internalize white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I didn't, uh, when you said it, I, I was just like, oh, I never thought of that. I never thought of, but I realized that in, but I also did at the end of our conversation make mention that I specifically spoke about Jeffrey Katzenberg and mm -hmm. how the, the relationship that the, the situation he had with regards to trying to find a journalist and I've talked about this. I've talked about this on a few different podcasts, but I'll mention it really quickly. Katzenberg was interviewing journalists for something that had to do with Quibi, and was working with a black woman as a producer. Mm -hmm. They had a black gentleman with an afro who was auditioning, and Katzenberg mm -hmm. kept making references to the woman that this gentleman does not appear professional. Oh. And I had mentioned to you at the time, I I partially blame him, and I partially blame the system. Because Jeffrey Katzenberg grew up in an era where the only ideas he had for professionalism were Walter Cronkite and Dan mm -hmm. Rathers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a, a perfectly coiffed hair and a suit and a specific mm -hmm. tone and delivery. And mm -hmm. anything less doesn't come across as professional. Mm -hmm. But then I realized Katzenberg's not the only person that does that. I feel like there's a lot of us who might do that. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. And how do we how do i even go about identifying that i've i'm 37 and i feel like i've only just realized that recently yeah i mean and i think a lot of it's you know come to the forefront more in terms of just like um permission to talk about this permission to mm -hmm. identify like well what is racial gaslighting and yeah. you know how how do i notice that like these you know these ideas of like what like success and achievement and professionalism is like a lot of it is rooted in white supremacy cultural values yeah and um 
And so part of like dismantling white supremacy and internalized white supremacy is like checking ourselves of like, why do we believe the things that we believe and how do we learn them? Hmm. And the the thing about like, white supremacy cultural values is like, it's, it's like water. It's, you know, it's everywhere. Yeah. And it's just sort of the default. And, you know, when I say white supremacy, I'm not talking about neo-Nazis and the yeah. KKK. I'm talking about the idea that the, the white person, the white body is the default, the norm, the standard, yeah. and everybody else has to kind of rise to meet that. Um, and so, you know, when we think about like, what does professionalism look like in, in our lives? And um, how can we pass in certain circles as a professional? Yeah. You know, people go like, we know, we you know, this code switching. Yeah. Like, you know, even like, you know, for me, like, how much of an accent or like, and I talk in Chinglish, you know, like how much of that I do in different settings. Yeah, um, yeah. And then like, you know, when you look at media depictions, like an example is like the emasculated Asian male, like oh, yeah. up yeah. until recently, most Asian men were, you know, sidekicks that were there for like shits and giggles. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, so it just, it shows up everywhere. You know, when people are like, well, Han, you would know the answer to that, right? It's like, well, why? <laughs> oh, because oh, you're Asian, right? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Know you know, it's like, but it's like, no, maybe it's not duh. It's, it's yeah. duh because our society has trained us to think duh. And like, I have been very much trained to like laugh at that, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And like, oh yeah, what a compliment, but it's not. No. I, oh my God. Yeah. I spent, uh, I, I recently posted a meme mm. about a, a a young white woman says to a young black girl, uh, oh, have you listened to this new insert, very popular black hip hop artist? And the person's just like, no, I haven't listened to it yet. And then the white person goes, I swear I'm more black than you. And I, I posted yeah. that and I said in the comments, in, in the caption, if I had maybe $5 for every time I heard this when I lived in the suburbs, I would have been able to pay off my parents' house, buy a bigger house in the city, and pay off the taxes on the house for five years. Like, I really wanted to hammer home the point that it wasn't just, I could have bought a new house. Right. I could have paid the taxes because yep. it was said so regularly with such ease, comfort, and I always wondered why was it so easy for it to be said to me and is was there anything that I was doing? Like, there was a lot of internalized blame. I always felt like maybe it's me. Maybe I'm. Should I be acting quote unquote more black? Should I act more stereotypical to what they want so that they don't even feel comfortable to say something like that to me? Because I didn't like it, but I would laugh because I would also be afraid that if I reacted negatively, they would get they would get scared. And fragility will show. Yes, and that's so uncomfortable. It's all the time. Yeah. 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 I mean, and that's something that like, you know, we've reckoned with a lot as people of color, mm. like, you know, what am I doing to invite this? But like, ultimately, whatever we do do to invite it is a matter of survival. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I'm sure you've, you know, I'm not sure, but like, I would venture a guess that you've learned to code switch and to blend oh. in and assimilate regularly because it is survival and adaptive for you. Yeah. And so when you mirror the dominant culture and your mannerisms, and then people like say, oh, you're not black enough. Like yeah. that is, that's such a racially gaslighting thing to say. And yeah. it puts the blame back on you. Um, when, you know, you didn't ask for that. You're just trying to survive. Yeah. And I also might just not like the artist. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like I'm allowed to not like this uh, this rapper. Sure. And, and and my my 
my race and how I identify shouldn't be limited to those specific boxes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I no culture is a monolith. Yeah. Yeah. And I always wondered, uh, and then it made me wonder because there's also those moments of like, well, is it that there's a jealousy that like, cause I'm, I'm, I was raised in a very much a devil's advocate world where I would regularly have these discussions with my mother. We had great debates and discussions and, and then I went on to study interpersonal communication in university with Rep professor Robert Danish, who was, you know, th that class was wonderful because it often made, it always asks you the question, try and understand every aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So I would see it from my side, of course, where I would feel uncomfortable. And then I would wonder, and this is a weird thing to wonder, but were my white friends saying that because they might feel like they don't have a culture? So when they say something like, oh, I'm more black than you, it gives them a sense of like, I identify with a culture for once. Because when I look at when we, because we talk about the dominant culture and the dominant um, default but default and normal usually means baseline. There's nothing mm -hmm. there's nothing added to it. It's just nothing straight. exceptional, unique, special, yeah. interesting. It's kind of bland. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and I think it's equally unfortunate, like on that end to feel like, well, then I don't have anything. So I want to say something, but then it's racist. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, you bring up a great point because there's a trade-off, you know, with the the control and the power that mm. comes with white supremacy is you forsake your ethnic identity. You know, when you think about like, well, what are white things? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you, you kind of think of some, you know, I don't know, like hot dogs, apple pie, whatever. It's like not like very... But yeah. you know, it's like like what's a Polish thing? What's an Italian thing? Yeah. What's a French thing? And then you think of all of these like ethnic cultural things. But like yeah. when you think about like white culture, you know, they have kind of snowballed and like absorbed a lot of elements of other cultures, and that's the trade-off of power. I mean, mm -hmm. you kind of see the same thing with like Christianity. Yeah. You know, you go and like, you know, have these um what was it, mission trips, and you kind of like colonize existing yep. indigenous religions and you roll it all up like oh you can still pray to your god kind of but it's like really our god is yeah. god yeah. you know and like <laughs> it's interesting because like you kind of also see it with like QAnon these days yeah. you know with like oh you're an anti-vaxxer you belong here with us and yeah. like whatever conspiracy theory it is like, like bring it in and, yeah 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 there's interesting. A, a phenomenon that that happens there Interesting. That is very, that is fascinating. Mm -hmm. I didn't even think about it that way that, yeah, that snowball, it starts with like a little snowball that you roll down the hill mm -hmm. and it turns into this much larger thing that encompasses so many things as it goes along. And then, you know, oh, yeah, I, I, it just makes me think about everything that was happening in the States. Uh, at, yeah. If you're watching this, we're recording this on MLK day, which, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, was one of the things that we were excited to do because it felt like a, I mean, it's also Blue Monday, funny enough, but it felt like a great day to, to to try and discuss some of the things that we feel both as people of color yeah. and try and identify the things with regards to mental health and what we do subconsciously. Uh, you know, I, one of the things that I, I, I noted here, implanted cultural ideas and concepts 
that concepts that frame the way we think. Mm-hmm. When we talk about, I, I feel like we've touched on it already, but when we talk about how we as people of color connect and, uh, or, or, or I feel, I'll rephrase, right now is the first time that I feel, at least in my life, that the different groups of color are mm-hmm. reaching out with an olive branch because, and I've always thought it when I was younger, as communities of color, we can't be, we, the separation is there on purpose. Oh, yeah. And, and unless we reach out and work together, it will. those separations will always keep us back. I mean, that's a tool of imperialism. That's a tool of, of the colonizer. You know, you don't want them to band together and yeah. collude against you. That's a threat. And so, you know, I, for example, I, I think when we had the Black Lives Matters marches mm-hmm. here in Montreal, uh, you know, one of my friends who's Korean reached out to me and was so proud that there was like a large group of the people in her community that yeah. were, that were working together because they wanted to be like a chapter in the march. And I thought that was so great to see because, I mean, I'm young, I guess, old enough to remember what happened in the the L.A. riots mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. that started. So to say, yeah, yeah, to 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 be here in 2020 and to hear her say that and to know. You know, her and I regularly have conversations. We've worked uh, together on different projects, and we we've we sometimes discuss the the representation of uh, in the Black community and in the Korean community, and how those two communities have seen each other in the past, and how they can work together and see each other in the future. And I always think it's so beautiful because she's young and she's passionate, and I can tell she genuinely sees the world as everyone is equal. And I love that that is continuing and growing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but then it also makes me think of you know she's healing the the past wounds of our and i'm helping heal the past wounds of our two communities uh is there it can we do that without our parents is there like or better yet how are the ways that we can do that and include our parents i think that Mm -hmm, would be mm -hmm. the better the better way to ask that because yeah. I, I mean, in my case, my parents are uh, liberal and her parents are liberal. So, I, I mean, for us, we're fine. But for, <laughs> for, for other kids yeah. in that situation, you know, how, how do they overcome the generational um, trauma slash uh, ideas around the, the culture and the community and how they've been separated? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think like for a lot of people I see in a lot of my clients, um, you know, they are doing the work for generations. They're, they're going to therapy because everyone in their life who really need to go to therapy refuses yeah. to. Yeah. And yeah. And so they they have to, you know, and I and I remind them of that because they're like, God, this is so hard. This is such hard work. And I've been at this for years and I feel like I've got like years to go. It's like, yeah, because yeah. you're doing the work not for only yourself, but your parents and your grandparents and also your unborn children. Like yeah. you're you're healing both up and down. You're 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 becoming um, you're healing your own generational trauma, but you're also becoming a better ancestor yeah. by doing this work. Ooh, I love that. A better yeah. ancestor. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I can't take credit for it. It's, it's Leah Syed, you know, me and my white supremacy, her, okay. her verbiage. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think about um, 
you know, like including your parents is is a really kind of a hot topic because it really depends on the type of relationship you have with them mm-hmm. and where they are and what their willingness is to do. And um, for a lot of, you know, the older generations are just, they're just not there and, and it's going to be more of a rift and um, more of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like a, like um, a disrespectful, like oh, disrupting the hierarchy to okay. try to yeah. change their minds about their established beliefs. And mm. I think in those cases, it's really important to know and just consider the context that um, in which they grew up. Like the every immigration story is a trauma story because yeah. you are leaving everything in order to make it in a different land. Yeah. And, um, you know, the tolls of that is that oftentimes anything like you know self-concept and actualization and self-reflection is a luxury they don't have time for that they they got to do like physical safety shelter put food on the table um and so their priority in raising us was to make sure our basic needs were met and then for us that is a gift of the ability to achieve some sort of reflection, awareness, and self-actualization. Oh, wow. Man, that is, thank you. That is, yeah. I guess I never, you know, uh, I understanding that, especially on my, for my mom, uh, my, my mom came over when she, unfortunately, my grandfather passed before I mean, she was 17 and then she came over at such a young age and was here and was, had left everything that she knew behind to come and live in Canada. And I think she went through a lot. Uh, and yeah, I mean, my, uh, my mom and I have a wonderful relationship and you know, I, she's someone that I can turn to and I, and have great conversations with. And I guess I never really thought of it. Cause you know, that idea of when we're kids, we see our parents as indestructible. And then mm-hmm. as we're older, we see that they're not indestructible. They just worked really hard. And, yeah. and, and in some cases, we're guarded, uh, which mm-hmm. is fair. Uh, and I guess I never really understood why. But I, I guess that that statement really hit home as to understanding like, oh, potentially, you know, guarded in some ways, because like you said, it was about survival. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it was and uh, yeah, I, I guess I never really thought of immigrating as traumatic, but it's I can't imagine it's ever not a slightly traumatic situation. Yeah, like even in the best case scenario. Yeah. Really- Everything you know, you're leaving your home and and your people. That's and, fair. Yeah, you I, have to assimilate in a whole new place and fit in and and try to make it work. I find traveling traumatic alone. <laughs> trying to, I do. I, yeah. I I'm not. Uh, I'm. Uh, you know. I I never feel comfortable when I travel. Uh, mm-hmm. I I constantly because I I guess you know that comes along with so many things that we've talked about. Like you know, I'm a person of color. I'm often mm-hmm. going to places. Uh, that are not predominantly uh, a blend, you know, in my travels, I, I want a trip to Australia once I mm. want a trip, not one, but I was um, a delegate to, for a conference to Zurich, Switzerland. So I've mm. been in very white dominated spaces yeah. Yeah. on the times that I've gotten to travel. And I think when I was in those spaces, there was a lot of, I was very guarded because I was just like, I don't see anyone that looks like me. Yeah, you can't hide that element of your identity. You know, like if you have a certain religious practice, like you can sort of hide that sometimes or your political views or whatever. But, you know, when it comes to your racial identity, that's 
really yeah. front I and center. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wear it, quite literally. Yeah. yeah. And it was just interesting because, it, you know, those trips were fun. I, I had an amazing time. I got to go with a close friend of mine uh, in on the Zurich trip. He's mm-hmm. also a person of color. Um, and we did, you know, once again, that thing I mentioned where you, we we laughed at most of the situation. So, yeah. you know, at one point we we sat in, uh, a, was it a, a station, a, like subway station mm-hmm. that like was like, because uh, in Montreal, we also have this where like multiple buildings connect to the one subway station. So there's like a kind of like a a mini mall underneath. Mm-hmm. And we just sat there counting how many people of color we saw for an hour because we were waiting for the hotel. And, and we did it j- to laugh. But also, I think we both needed to feel like we weren't literally the only yeah. people of color. And that was that was an alarming feeling like we mm-hmm. you know, the whole time joking about it. But, you know, I look back and think, ah, yeah, like I we needed that comfort mm-hmm. again. That's yeah. Survival. Yeah. You know, finding some recognition. Uh, I don't know. I, yeah, that that's that's it's such a stressful thing sometimes when I think about it mm-hmm. um, I, I, and and just dealing with the ideas and. I, I think one of the other the 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 other thing that we talked about that that I, I makes me think of is that feeling comes from I guess the idea like we were saying that there's that separation mm-hmm. and I sometimes wonder like how do we get make it clear to other groups and we we had when we did the pre-interview we had this conversation there is no scarcity in the world that yeah. as people of color we are not trying to take your space or your places. Uh, we are all equal. There's enough for everyone if we all work together. Mm-hmm. And uh, as and <laughs> and also trying to say it without reminding them the only reason you're scared of scare that there's scarcity is because historically your ancestors went and took everything, pillaged <laughs> and pillaged. <laughs> and the reason you see it as scarcity is because you everything was taken from a lot of these communities and now Mm -hmm. is that i feel like you might be afraid because you think we're coming back to get ours but we're beyond that i think at this point it's not about getting ours it's about just accepting we all have we there is enough for all yeah yeah i mean although i do support reparations and land back as well you know it's it's yeah like we're not asking for anything special we're just asking for an equal chance yeah yeah, I would dare say that the reparations is is because again that idea of for for them to feel like there's scarcity or that if we came for reparations that they would lose something. You're not losing anything if you have to pay out the reparations, like, right? Because your your ancestors have built that safety yeah, net. You know, it's exactly. like. You can there's think of it as like, you know, something like buying a house. Well, why don't you just borrow your down payment from your parents? You yeah. know, if you have generations to build that wealth in, in your family as, as, a, as a white family, like, mm-hmm. yeah, why wouldn't you? Of course you just borrow it because it's like a drop in the bucket or maybe yeah. not. You know, I, I, that's definitely a yeah, yeah. generalization. Yeah. But like for the overwhelming or a much greater proportion of people of color, they don't have that safety net. Yeah. They don't have the generational wealth to to tap into. And it's uh, and one of the other things that's weird is we also have a sense of fear when our not fear, I don't know how to describe it, but 
for example, when my parents want to offer to pay for things or offer to help me with things, I feel guilt in accepting it. And I, I always wonder why you like when I, my partner and I, uh, put a down payment on a condo and we now have this place. And one of mm-hmm. the first thing my parents offered was we'd like to get you the fridge and the stove, the appliances. Mm-hmm. That's, that's mm-hmm. our gift to you. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt guilty accepting mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Why did I feel guilty accepting that? Cause I have other friends that I know uh, and you know, no offense to them, but they're white and th- they got it. And it was just, and in some cases it was understood that, I expect it. Yeah, there's an entitlement to it. Yeah. 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 I mean, a lot of it goes, you know, back to like, what did you see your parents doing as a child, right? Were they struggling financially? What did, mm. you know, was it hard for them to make ends meet? And now, you know, like the blood, sweat, and tears and sacrifice that goes into a gift like that versus when everything comes with kind of this ease and, and this yeah. privilege. Like, you know, it's not something that certain groups of people have to think about. You know, and I think like with the collectivist, you know, identity too, like it is a lot more within communities of color, like ingrained that you will take care of your parents. You yeah. will, you will ensure that they live out their lives in comfort and, you know, preferably not in a nursing home for yeah. as long as possible. And, you know, that's, that's part of it is like, okay, well, if you treat me to this, are you going to have enough for yourself? Mm. And, you know, wanting to make sure that they, they stay comfortable for as long as possible too because you are thinking about the collectivist's greater good of the family um, and not just whatever you know you feel entitled to yeah yeah that's yeah it's true that is it you know that uh i i don't i i don't think my parents struggled but i definitely as i mentioned to you uh, off air and, and some of you might know but not everyone knows uh, my sister has special needs and i did watch mm-hmm. my parents work very hard at providing wow. for my sister and myself and there was a lot of focus my parents regularly joke that they didn't raise me they made sure i just didn't get myself hurt but they were so focused on my sister and i always tell them like well no you raised me and they're just like yeah but you know it's not like we did anything. You kind of just developed into this person on your own. And I, and I, you know, I, I don't think so. I think I definitely have traits from my mother, my, 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 my interest, you know, my mom taught me at a very young age. Um, no matter what you do, there's a good chance that people are going to judge you. So if that's going to be the case, be your honest self. Don't don't try and hide or try and change who you are for anybody because they're going to develop an idea before you even speak. Mm-hmm. I think it was her nice way of giving me the you're a young black man in this world speech mm-hmm. I, I, the, without specifically saying as making it race oriented. Yeah. Like be aware of who you are and where you come from. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I, you know, and I and, and then for my father, I think my ability to speak to literally anyone my father could talk to anyone at any time there was no you know the idea of shame uh that some of my friends feel or this idea of pride when your pride will be hurt if someone doesn't want to interact with you i don't have that and i think i get that from my father um uh, i i grew up with the i the i don't think my parents ever taught it to me but i did grow up with the idea that if i speak to someone and that person doesn't wish to speak to me did i know that person five minutes ago and will I know that person five minutes from now? And did you actually lose anything? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I always thought to myself, oh, no, I, you know, it's it's an interaction. If anything, you just learn from the interaction, but you can. Sure, move yeah. 
Um, Do you think there's a part of you that learned, you know, social flow and charisma as a way to disarm people mm, because oh. of what it's like to be approached by a black man in our society? Yeah, oh, 100%. <laughs> I, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, the first time at the, and it's unfortunate, but the first time I heard the N word hurled at me, I was six. Oh gosh. I'm yeah. So sorry. And, yeah. Uh, and I had to, and I didn't know what it meant. So I had yeah. to ask my mom because I, I, as a six year old, I didn't know what the word meant, but I knew what the tone meant. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think, you know, as I knew I didn't, I didn't understand the word, but the way the person said it, it felt like a threat. Yeah. It was not good. No. Yeah. So mm -hmm, I asked my mm -hmm. mom and then my mom was very sad. Um, and then, yeah. And I think there was a lot of times where I, as I grew up that I, I kind of had these weird interactions uh, at 13, <laughs> it, it dressed in my Sunday best at a church event, standing outside of a subway station. Mm -hmm. I got approached for drugs. Oh gosh. And the idea and, and, and kind of trying to understand one, why, well, I mean, what, what about me in that moment said to that person, he might have drugs for sale. I was in a suit. Uh, yeah. I was 13. Granted, I know I looked much older at 13. I was mm -hmm. regularly told I looked almost 16 to 18. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's just the idea that one, that's also another thing. Young black men are uh, are often seen as more adult or more mature. Yep. Yep. Uh, so the fact that the person felt comfortable too, I mean, at a church event, <laughs> that's, 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 I sometimes look back at it and I think, what, what Sunday best on a Sunday afternoon in a suit? Just what? And I still don't get it. Um, yeah, the irony. Yeah. yeah. And it also throws it back to our conversation about, you know, appearing professional. I was mm -hmm. dressed to the nines. Yeah. Still approach with the idea. That wasn't enough. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that also gives me the idea of like, well, what can I do to make it clear? Oh man, I just had a weird breakthrough mm. in discussing this. Cause I've never done drugs. I've never smoked mm -hmm. weed or anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering now, like, did I just never want to, because I felt that it was just at, at 13 when I got approached, did that just put me off of being like, even when I look, when I don't look like someone who does drugs, mm -hmm. I'm still being approached as someone who might have access to drugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like something you just don't ever want to be affiliated with. Yeah. I mean, yeah. not that there's anything wrong with weed, but it's just at 13 standing outside Ooh. of a subway station. There's no reason for me to appear like a drug dealer uh, or what yeah. the idea of a drug dealer is or, or the fact that, uh, uh, you know, I, again, just being black made me a possible drug dealer. Right. Right. Um, interesting. Yeah. I mean, and you see, you see that in like so many different versions, you know, like I've, I've definitely had to play up my like innocent, helpless little Asian woman, mm. you know, thing, because sometimes I'm like, Oh, I need access to something or yeah. I need someone's support or help. And like, what, in what way will I be best received? You know, yeah. like my personality and, and like the way I typically am in the world is not very, subservient or docile but there's definitely been times when i'm like this is what's going to serve me in this situation yeah. and then like having to be a chameleon again for survival's sake yeah yeah it's you know it's it, it's it's definitely uneasy at times i had a conversation yeah. with a, a gentleman on my show a while ago seek knowledge he's a uh seek um music producer mm -hmm. 
and him and I both talked about the fact that we regularly, you know, code switch, um, mm-hmm. probably have certain mannerisms. We probably act a certain way. Uh, you know, I don't think, I mean, I, I think this, the, the, old, the whole idea of like, I being told as at a young age that I articulate too much was always a very weird mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. Uh, because that was just code for you sound white. Yeah. And I knew that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and those were the, those were, these are things that I just felt a lot throughout my life. And I think it brings me back to the beginning of our conversation, the internalized white supremacy. Yes. Because I would, I, I, I don't think I was doing it on purpose. I don't think there's anything about the way I speak. I speak the way I speak because I'll be honest, as a kid, I loved mimicking accents. And there was a point in my life where I truly did not know what my accent was. I, I did, It wasn't like I, 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 I was at a point where I was just like, do I actually sound like this? Or is this an, I, is this the way I speak because of all the different accents I've been doing for mm-hmm. 10 to 15 years as a kid? Mm-hmm. So it just kind of, snowballed from that yeah yeah i mean internalized white supremacy shows up in such subconscious ways Mm. and i mean for you know and it shows up you know for for white people as internalized racial superiority Mm. and for people of color as internalized racial inferiority Mm -hmm. and you know so for people of color it is a code switching survival mechanism like you have this like automatic thought of like my culture my you know um heritage and the the mannerisms and traditions associated with that is not going to be valued as much by the dominant society so that racial inferiority so how do i elevate myself mm-hmm. how do i assimilate and how do i fit in but mm-hmm. then there's a big difference between fitting in and belonging because you can fit in but is is this really where you actually feel like you belong oh yeah yeah and then I think for for white people, this internalized racial superiority, it's like, well, duh, this is just how things are. Like, yeah. I'm not, you know, I don't have like, this isn't a, a race thing. This is just like courtesy, you know, like when it comes to like oh. perfectionism and telling things in a linear way and the you know worship of the written word and punctuality and, and all of these elements that like, you know, we kind of think of in like the corporate you know, academic world as like, just like what garners success and what like achievement looks like. Yeah. And it's like, well, why? Yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, a fascinating thing to, to think about. And then I, I, I had mentioned to you last time because I live in Quebec, there's also the added layer of language. Yeah. Uh, you know, and like the code switching, like I went to a French school as a kid. Mm-hmm. I'm fluently bilingual mm-hmm. uh, and I spent so much of my time making sure when I was younger, I didn't like the idea that I had an accent. Mm-hmm. And then once upon a time, someone said to me, having an accent's a good thing. It means you speak more than one language. You should never be ashamed of an accent. Mm-hmm. And I that that moment revolutionized the way mm-hmm. I thought about how I spoke when I spoke French because I was just like, Oh, I having an accent is a nod to the fact that this is not my first language yeah. and that I should not feel shame for having an accent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also the added thing of until that moment feeling like I needed to fit in not only as in a dominantly white society, but in the case of Quebec, a French one as well. Mm-hmm. 
So I I was I, I always I often felt at a disadvantage. Is disadvantage the right word? I guess it, it, it it's a word that applies, but I didn't think of it at the time as a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. But as More a that, like you stood out. Yeah. I'm an Anglophone and I'm black. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the language thing I could hide uh, mm -hmm. because until I spoke, you didn't know. Yeah. Um, and then in, in a lot of cases when I was younger, because the accent, uh, a lot of the professors that, or teachers I had when I was younger would try and teach us European French mm -hmm. as opposed to Quebec French, which is a whole other conversation about the French language and, mm -hmm. you know, much like the British and the English and Americanization and so on. But mm -hmm. The, the idea of like the way you speak French when I was speaking French was European French. So then I wasn't being accepted because I'm one black two when I speak French, I don't sound like the French you want me to sound like. Mm -hmm. And then when you realize, Oh, I'm not actually French. He's an Anglophone. So there was that kind of li literally some of the reaction was just like, Oh, you're passing. Mm -hmm. That reaction of just like, Oh, you're trying to be one of us. It's like, no, I'm speaking the language. It's French. Yeah, yeah. And like passing as an insult. Yeah. As mm -hmm. if I was trying to trick them. Right. <laughs> so just like trying to like be yourself and like find your find your place. <sighs> it's like they are trying to do it too, just like each and every one of us are trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. It, it I always thought it was very interesting to 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 deal with that and mm -hmm. to think about that. Um well, one of the last things I wanted to talk to you about yeah. is something that we mentioned last time. And it's something, uh, you know, the, the and you also mentioned it, uh, trying to be a good ancestor. Mm -hmm. So uh, last time you, uh, you you discussed it. Oh, what did you call it? Um, psychological eugenics. Mm. When I told you that, you know, I regularly have the thought of I might want to have kids. But sometimes mm -hmm. I definitely have the thought of maybe I don't want to bring kids into this world because I've dealt with so many things that I'm scared that what I'd have to bring a child into. And then I said to you, but is it possible that that's the ploy and that the the, the dominant society is playing the game of, well, good, because we don't want you to think about bringing another person of color into the world. Mm -hmm. And that was a scary thought. And then when you you named it, I was just like, oh, my God, I've never even thought of I never even put a name to it. It was just this kind of joke that I made. But it was it, it's a thought that I actually have. Um, and it makes me wonder, like, what are you know, what are some of the things I should do to I identify and address that for myself? Or if I was ever to try and talk to someone about it, how do I even explain that to them in a way that they might understand so that they they get why I feel that way? Just sort of like the um, the generations of trauma that you hold, and like the fear of passing that on to your your future generations. Or yeah. I do enjoy that when you ask the question, you word it better than I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to you know, understand. But yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like you said, you know, there was the trauma of my mom having to yeah. leave. Mm -hmm where she was and my father having to leave where he was to mm -hmm. come here, you know, for quote unquote, better opportunity. Then there's the trauma of me growing up here as an Anglophone black man in Quebec 
when mm-hmm. Quebec is a predominantly white and French space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the thought of bringing a child into that world. Um, you know, my partner is, for example, Irish Italian. So mm-hmm. the, the child would be mixed race. The yeah. child would be uh, would, would be mixed race, would be uh, po- mo- predominantly Anglophone mm-hmm. and uh, and and would have generations of the the past drama trauma mm-hmm. on my side, potential trauma on the the the, the uh, Irish Italian side, mm-hmm. depending on uh, you know, the immigration story on that side of the family. And then and then and then here's this child now who who was brought into this world <laughs> dealing with those things and all the scary future things I can only imagine that I constantly think about in my head. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, it's interesting because as you were talking, I, I was just really reminded of like, you know, white supremacy hurts everybody, including white people, mm. because they have their own intergenerational trauma. Oh. You know, like if you think about like, when before you know they immigrated to the to North America, like medieval times, which is yeah. like you know hundreds of years of brutality and plagues and famine yeah. and war, you know, yeah. and it's like they carried all of that in their bodies when they arrived on this yeah. on this you know stolen land, and then like it was like oh well we're going to enact on you guys like what the things you know, yeah we were yeah but like what an act of resistance survival is and mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not even saying this like oh you should have a kid <laughs> but <laughs> like, you know the, the a gift that i think you know a lot of communities of colors like we are forced to reckon with this we are forced to examine like what are the ways that we fit in what are the ways that we don't and how does this impact our quality of life and the way that we are valued by our peers the way that we value ourselves um in ways that a lot of white people don't or they don't have to mm-hmm. and so they carry all that trauma but they're not examining it you know and mm-hmm. they feel very entitled to spoils of the earth yeah and yeah. and they're not actually asking themselves these questions and you know and coming from this like rugged individualist perspective i mean that's really toxic and you kind of see like the culmination of some of that in like Trumpism and, and the capital mm. coup and the insurrectionists yeah. that you know we are seeing in the United States right now. Um and so yes, like there will be trauma yeah. and but there are there is everywhere. It's a matter of what do you do with what you now know mm-hmm. and how do you use that information to bring awareness to how and why you think and do the things that you do and what you are intentional about um, and passing on to future generations. And that's the greatest gift that we can give as good ancestors, you know, no matter what our race is. And that's why it's just as important that white people do this work too. And, you know, really challenge their internalized white supremacy and, and, you know, engage in anti-racist practice and, you know, examine the way that, systems of oppression operate in their lives because it hurts everybody yeah it's holding us all back it is yeah yeah dr han ren (laughs) my god thank you so much this conversation was amazing fascinating i feel like i learned so much hopefully i've discussed things that will help other people address some of the the internalized ideas they have uh any of the thoughts they have any of the the feelings they had um any of the doubt i think that's one of the things one of the reasons i was most excited about speaking with you is because 
when I saw your your initial post on uh, Instagram, which was shared by one of my friends, shout out mm-hmm. to Bianca, um, when she shared it, and I f- saw that first initial post about mm-hmm. um, internalized white supremacy and mental health and breaking down the the ideas and the the myths behind mental health, mm-hmm. and I was just like, whoa, whoa. And it was, uh, like I mentioned, it was one of the first times that I had ever thought, uh, oh, I might need to actually address and look at my own mental health. Yeah. And it kind of just coincided perfectly that I was thinking that and I saw your post and it, it makes, you know, social media become such a, as much as it's a double-edged sword, but it is mm-hmm. such a powerful tool sometimes because it did oh, connect me with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I definitely appreciate it for that. And I appreciate that you took the time to speak with me. Um, you know, uh, is there anything that, that you feel... I may not have touched on that you would that you would love to at least just mention for the people that mm. are listening. Uh, you know, um, you know, I think, I mean, there's so much, right? Because this this is yeah, like, true, of course, books, <laughs> books and worth worth of knowledge, and it's just like, I, and like, I am such a beginner in this journey, mm. and um, you know, there's there's a lot of times where I'm like, I get like imposter syndrome, and I'm like, I, I can't mm. speak on this. I'm just beginning to learn about this. Yeah. Um, and so you know, I personally try to approach this with humility and like acknowledging there's a ton that I don't know that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that said, a lot of people let, let that like fear of like, Oh my God, am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to get it right? Like it freezes them in their tracks. So they're like, I'm not going to try it. I'm not going to attempt mm-hmm. it. And you know, anti-racism is not a spectator sport. You can't just like read about it and be like, okay, I'm doing it. You know, you have to like actually start to put some of these values into practice, whether it's, yeah. you know, internally and just sort of examining your own identity and engaging in your own um, dismantling work or like with, you know, accountability groups with your peers or um, just in, in like, where do you put your money? You know, who? Yeah. Are you, what types of businesses are you supporting? Um, and so I, I just, I kind of want to just touch on like, don't let the fear of not getting it right hold you back because mm-hmm. none of us, are ever going to like get it right. Certainly not all the time. And this is messy. It is so messy. And like a lot of people begin this work and then when they get embroiled in that messiness and they feel like lightheaded, they're like, I need to sit down. I can't do this. Yeah, yeah. I'm opting out. Yeah. Like, what a privilege that is that you yeah. can opt out, you know? <laughs> but so many of us can't. We can't change our skin. We can't no. change you know, our physical features, we still have to live in this body. Yeah. And so do the work, even when it's messy, especially when it's messy. Yeah. Especially double down, double down when it's messy. <laughs> yeah. And seek help, you know, do, yeah. we, can't, we can't do this by, by ourselves. Like none of my ideas on racism are original. You know, they're all yeah. things I've worked on in community and have learned from, from my, my people yeah, um, and my, my chosen people. Um, and so, so make sure you establish that collective care because it's a, an essential part of of undoing this and you know challenging this individualism element. I I I do want to ask now that you mentioned it. Was there a turning point for you when you realized like I want to focus on this now more yeah. so than ever? Yeah. And what was it? Um, you know, I've always kind of wanted to like like what would it be great to like counsel Asian Americans, people who have similar lived experiences. Mm -hmm. And when I started my practice, it was right after Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. And that was when I was like, oh, like there's a (laughs) lot of people who are scared to exist because of this. And, you know, that's when like, 
um, you know, race and racism was really brought into the forefront of the national conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was one turning point. I started really doing this in my clinical work and just like kind of learning as I went and like, you know, learning just from the experience of, of counseling people with with these lived experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and then two years ago, um, there was this big rift in um, a local mental health professionals Facebook group um, okay. where there was a racist thing that was said and then there was a lot of white fragility and doubling down on it. Anyways, long story, I ended up inheriting the admin duties of this group. Oh, wow. um, okay. and, and so I was like, okay, how do I build this out intentionally into an anti-racist and anti-oppressive space? And so like, you know, recruiting different moderators and like writing the group norms and cultural values and moderation protocols and it was really shocking to me that how many mental health professionals were so fragile oh. and like didn't even consider this as like, you know, a clinical area of concern or interest. Oh. And that's when I was like, I really have to, you know, focus on this as, yeah. as my passion, as my practice. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, not only like, with my clients, but also educating other clinicians, you know, cause in grad school you learn like, Oh, cultural competency, but like, that's not really even a thing. You can't be yeah. competent in every single culture. Yeah. So yeah. then what, you know? So, um, yeah. And like a lot of the, the things that have gone down in that group has been great, like on the ground learning experiences for me for how to have these conversations in, yeah. you know, a, a frank direct way. Um, and just like a lot of my own internal work of like, you know, virtues that I thought were like really great. Um, at one point I realized like, oh, like, you know, that's actually a trauma response or that's like my model minority part coming out, like trying to be like palatable to people, you know? Yeah. And so just like really, really learning about that as I went. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, that is, that's, I mean, it, it, I, it's unfortunate that that happened in that group, but I feel like it, you, you've spun it into such a beautiful thing uh, and you, the work you're doing is so great. And like I said, for anyone who's watching this, for anyone who's listening to this, if you go onto social media, if you follow at dr.han.ren on, that's for... That's Instagram. That's yeah. Instagram. And then on TikTok, it's the same without the dots. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so for anyone who's interested to follow, I, I would highly recommend it because, again, that you regularly discuss these things. Yeah. And uh, I and, you know, that moment that those two moments, like you said, when uh, in 2017, when your practice started and right around when uh, Trump got into office. And then that second moment, those kind of those pinpoints that led to you turning your social media platform into a space that's inviting and informative. It's so wonderful. And again, I'm so happy that I came across it through my friend, Bianca, uh, who I, I, I saw was following you. So I'm sure she's yeah. going to be very excited. And again, I thank her because, you know, I, I feel like I've learned so much and I, 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 again, this is the first time for me that I'm considering looking into speaking to a professional and yeah, I hope you do, you know, like, yeah. we can all benefit from it. And that, yeah, yeah, and that's it. Right. And I, I'm looking like, again, I, I'm in Quebec, so it, it's not as easy to find a person of color or someone that I feel would understand. And it's also the, 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 the language, because I, I might find like, I've seen 
there are some that are uh, people of color, um, professionals of color in, in psychology, but they predominantly speak French. And I would, mm -hmm. I would feel more comfortable speaking, not because I can't speak French, but because I know I would express myself better in yeah, English. In native tongue. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's, so it, it, it there's a lot of that trying to find those balances and and mm -hmm. and those the those fill those things out so that I can feel comfortable moving into that space. Mm -hmm. um, but like you said, you know, one of the reasons that I didn't do it so far was there was a fear because I was afraid of the overwhelming. And we talked about this last time how the, the you know anger uh, as a control for fear. So there was one time where I, mm -hmm. I got really upset when I first started looking because I was just like, well, there's nothing there for me, so I just stopped. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that then I realized well no th there is it's just going to take work and it's important to do it because it will benefit you um and I think reaching out to you was one of the first steps in getting over that discomfort so yeah yeah and I'm so glad you did you know that's that's another you know, like and the social media thing is super new I started this like November end of October oh wow so, yeah like it's like I'm, I'm like I don't really know what I'm doing but I'm like I'm just gonna post something every day um hey. but I mean what I realized is like so many people are like wow you give me hope that there are clinicians like you out there yeah that, yes oh, exactly yeah. Yeah, and so I'm like, really okay, do. It's, it's, a, it's a template, you know. Yes, yeah. yes. No, honestly, you really do. You, it, seeing those posts and speaking with you has definitely given me the sense that I will be able to find someone. It mm -hmm. may take time. Yeah, but the, it is possible, and yeah. and I and that that that's great. I I like the hope. Uh, you know, it's like I said at the beginning, 2020 is this time of a lot of reflection and stuff like that. And there's been a lot of like a lot of weights and you know, even just working in this, in this office. And sometimes I, I mentioned it on my other podcast, that sense of like, you know, there's no commute home. So I can't leave anything at work. Work is in my home. It's the same space. Uh, and those are all things I want to talk about. And, you know, talking with you has really given me that sense that I can find someone and I, yes. you know, I look you forward to yeah. thank you. And thank you again. Honestly, thank you very much this this was a great conversation i very much appreciate it i appreciate your time um you know and and uh it was a it's a it's a nice way to end blue monday as <laughs> as some of my friends have been constantly reminding me uh i'd like to think of it more as uh martin luther king day and um you know i, I think something that you know all the things that he stood for and all the things that he said uh you know one of the things that the, the 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 connecting with the different communities that all the kids will play together and and I think you know like we were saying in this conversation if all the communities of color can work together and uh, and and the you know the 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 dominant the society recognizes that hey there's no scarcity we can all link yeah. and work together that would yeah. be better collaboration over yeah. competition yes. yes oh my god <laughs> see every time again <laughs> I think it, and then you say it better than how I'm thinking. And I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. This was really fun. I'm, I'm really glad to, you know, speak with you and to have met you and get to be here. Awesome. Pleasure. Uh, is there, uh, other than TikTok and Instagram, is there anywhere else people should check you out? Um, my website, drhanren.com. Perfect. Yeah, under construction, but new, new version should be out, you know, maybe by March. So. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to raise a glass. Do, if yes, you yes. I, I still have my glass. So cheers to cheers. you. Cheers to a uh, wonderful, mentally healthy 2021 for everyone. Yes, thank you thank so you. much. Take care. And that's another edition of Not a Journalist with Brian Holiday. 
You guys can find more episodes on brianholiday.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-H-O-L-I-D-A-E. Also, follow me on all social media platforms at Brian Holiday. If you guys want to support me, make sure to check out my coffee page. That's ko-fi.com slash Holiday. And if you have something to say, you can leave a message at anchor.fm slash not-a-journalist slash message. And I'll add it to the next episode. Thanks for tuning in, everyone.